It's not every day you come to Los Angeles from your home in New York City to find that your podcast, hosted by Mark Marin, is going to have the President of the United States on the show with 40 or so United States Secret Service personnel on your property, with a sniper perched upon the show's studio garage, and uniformed cops from the LAPD guarding the perimeter of the house. That's exactly what happened to Brendan McDonald, the producer of the WTF podcast, who I speak with for episode number 67 of The Influencer Economy with Ryan Williams. The Influencer Economy is a podcast where I speak with makers, creators, and entrepreneurs launching the next big things in media. Oftentimes, we talk about a person, place, or a thing, and in this instance, the thing is Mark Maron's WTF. Really excited to have Brendan on the show. Recommend you stick around this till the end. We talk a lot about media and how Obama used uh, WTF as a media platform, which is based in Marin's garage, and how that's so different now than it would have been five or ten years ago for a media tour, and how they booked the president versus the president booking them on the podcast. In addition to the finer points of producing a world-class podcast where Mark is the yin and Brendan is the yang. Without further ado, Brendan McDonald. So WTF with Mark Marin, you're the producer of over 600 episodes, and okay. you recently had Barack Obama on the show. And from what I've read, that was listened to over 2.5 million times. And can you take us back to the moment you got the email from the White House inquiring to see if Mark would uh, host Obama on the podcast? Yeah, well, the, the first email we got from them uh, – it came through to all the, the email channels that we have on our website, the contact page. And so I saw it and, and Mark's uh, representation, who also have a contact on that page, they saw it and they forwarded it to me and said, you might want to check and see if this is real. Uh, and it was not about interviewing the president. It was just a introduction from the White House communications team. And there was nothing... Um, specific about talking to President Obama. And and quite frankly, Mark and I didn't imagine that that was in the cards. We thought maybe they wanted to do something with podcast audiences, like the way they do, um, you know, Google Hangouts or things like that, but but not specifically with the president. Uh, and so it wasn't until I would say probably about four or five months after we first started uh, communicating with them that the mention of President Obama came up as something that could maybe possibly one day happen. Uh, so that was really how the ball got rolling in in terms of it being a realistic thing for us to you know plan for and have in our minds as a possibility. Uh, and 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 prior to that, we didn't imagine that it ever would have been a thing that we could even dream about, let alone pursue. So uh, definitely having the White House reach out to us. Is the is the reason that it happened because we wouldn't have been so bold as to go the other way. And the the beautiful thing about it is, someone who podcasts oftentimes from my living room or bedroom or hallway uh, is that it. The president came to the garage, and to think about that just in a media sense of the word, like how drastically the landscapes changed. Where going to a, someone's garage in Los Angeles with cats hiding in a bedroom is actually, you know, part of the president's, you know, place where he wants to have a conversation and where people are listening. Yeah. And I, you know, I said this on, on the show uh, when we were recapping it, you know, I think that was just a huge win 
for podcasting in general. Um, the idea that, you know, he has his pick of media outlets. Um, and there, there, are, there aren't a lot of options that, you know, are not at the disposal of the president if he wants to communicate to the country and, and, and the world. And so it's very validating to know that, that podcasting had achieved a level of um, acceptance in the media landscape where the president found it to be a, a, an adequate tool uh, to, you know, communicate to, you know, people that might not watch uh, public affairs shows or cable news or, you know, read a regular, uh, you know, news magazine or newspaper online or anything like that. So uh, that was a hugely validating uh, advance, I think, not, not just for, for our show, but for the medium. And it makes it easier for you to tell people that you produce a show in a garage. Oh, sure. Uh, and it makes it easier to tell guests, like, oh, no, you, you have to come to the garage. You know, if yeah. the president did it, you, you can do it. You, let's not talk about traffic. Yeah, right, right. right. Like, there, the four I mean, five... that's, a li- that's a little unfair because he got to take a helicopter. But, uh, but, but still, the point stands. You can't use the excuse that the 101 freeway is blocked. Yeah, right. So it's, it's been it's been blocked for someone else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, what was it like having you know the SWAT teams and and you're you're based in New York, so you're not always there. Like you're and now you're there. Yeah, I'm very extreme. rarely. Yeah, very rarely ever in LA with Mark. Uh, just because we don't have to do the show that way. It's kind of the freedom that we're afforded. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was uh, it was quite the scene. You know, Mark wasn't there for a majority of it. He was on vacation. And uh, I, I think that worked out for the better. He uh, he's good at focusing on on what he needs to focus on, and it probably would have been a lot of stuff that he didn't need to focus on. And so uh, the the anxiety level can get easily uh, ramped up, especially when it's something as high pressure as speaking to the president of the United States. So uh, I think it worked out all for the best. I I was happy to handle. I was thrilled to handle. It, it was fascinating. So uh, it was uh, it, it was good. It was kind of allowed Mark and I to. To, to lean on our strengths and and focus on the things that we're good at. What was something that you saw with Secret Service or dogs sniffing through the house that surprised you at the level of, of security that was on the premises? Well, I don't think I was surprised by anything in, you know, in the sense that you expect them to pull out all the stops to protect the leader of the free world. So there was nothing that I thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect that to happen. But it was it was less about being surprised and more about being uh, kind of ha- happily overwhelmed by how uh, extensive and thorough the entire operation is. I mean, uh, you know, you're you're you, the the country really is at no uh, worry of uh, how well our president is being protected. It's a it's a truly fantastic operation with like the top of the line professionals. Uh, running the operation, uh, the, these were these were some of the best people I'd ever worked with, and it was like a thrill and an honor to work with them for a week. And were you tempted to call the president Barry? No, I was tempted to not speak to the president at all. I would I, I would have uh, been fine with the experience just being what it was, because you know, in my mind, uh, the whole thing was you know a, a bit stressful and and uh, you know easy to fray nerves. Um, until they were gone, you know, I had to make sure that everything went well on our end and, you know, that we got the recording that we needed. We, you know, if if I were, uh, distracted by a desire to like, you know, get FaceTime with the president, 
I, I would have I would not have been focusing on the things I needed to focus on. So I did not think of what I could or would say to him, or I was not tempted to say anything in particular to him. It was a uh, it was a, a tremendous honor that that they asked me to come over and meet him. So I was uh, I was very happy to to let that uh, happen organically. Did you and Mark meet him at the same time? Well, Mark just met him right from the get go, and and the the entire um, the the entire uh, scenario was laid out so that the president wouldn't have to walk anywhere other than an uh, area that was covered. Would you say you booked the president on the podcast? Uh, or did, you they mean, would, did they book you? <laughs> oh, I would say that it's still uh, it, it's still all about what we're able to uh, agree to, and and uh, you know we would not have had the president on the show if the pitch was, uh, you know, President Obama would like to come on and talk about this policy initiative that he's working on, and uh, we'd like uh, him to, you know, be on your show for 10 minutes and Mark could ask him some questions about that, you know, we would have said no. And the the reason that these com- these conversations went on with the White House in, a, in as comfortable a manner as they did uh, was that we felt very comfortable right from the get-go that they understood the show. It was very, very clear to us that they understood the show and that they were that the members of the staff that we were talking to were listeners and had had listened to a substantial amount of the show by re, by basis of the the references that they were giving us. So um, you know we felt we felt a level of comfort in in knowing uh, that they were not approaching this under some kind of false premise as to what kind of interview we, we would do. And they were fairly explicit about that as well. Like you know we just want to do the show the way you guys do it. So. Uh, to answer your question, I mean, yes, we booked the president on the show because we booked the show that we do, you know, and, uh, uh, if they had booked us, I think it would have been a different thing. Yeah, that's cool. I, uh, I thought the interview was normal. And when, when I heard the part about, um, when Obama grew up, you know, or part of his life around Pasadena and they were talking and Mark mentioned that. Is that when he started smoking? You know, he talks to the president about him smoking in his formative years. <laughs> that that was like, okay, this is going to be a normal interview. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't actually be more thrilled with how, especially in hindsight, because, you know, I, I know that in the moment, I definitely had the feeling of like, oh, I hope they get to this, or I hope this thing that they're saying right now leads to something that I had in mind or whatever, you know, you just kind of, uh, have a mental image of how you want things to go. And, and it's natural to kind of try to chase that. Uh, and I know that's probably natural for an interviewer too, someone like Mark to, to think, all right, I'm on a path here. I had this plan, but, uh, you know, things don't go as planned, especially in a loose conversation. And so you have to be willing to see where it goes and ride with that flow. And, I think, you know, surely we were done with the interview and both Mark and I had a sense of like things that we had wished were asked or tone that w- would have been preferable at certain times or, you know, whatever. It's just the things you, you kind of like your ideals of things that get uh, brought to the forefront when something has been executed. Um, you know, no different than like if you built a house, you're going to always be thinking about that one thing you decided not to install or whatever. Um, so that over time, over in the two months since has definitely dissipated because I can look at it with fresh eyes or fresh ears and say, 
this kind of interview doesn't exist anywhere else with the president of the United States. And, you know, basically, like, some, just as an example of the, the, the um, moment that you brought up with the smoking, um, you know, just those few seconds where that question was asked and, you know, the president responded in somewhat, you know, pretty direct manner, like, like yeah, that's when I start smoking and trying on different things, trying on different personalities and, you know, seeing who I was. Like, I, I, I'm maybe some people have heard him talk like that or read him in print talk like that. But I think, you know, six and a half, seven years into his presidency, he has not said that in public uh, in a way that people can say that's the president speaking right now, saying things like that. So it's it's all uh, it, it's definitely there's nothing about it that that I regret or that Mark regrets. Well, there's something about the vulnerability that, sure. he, that he showed, and he talks about Shaft having an influence on his life. Yeah, I mean, there's no forum where he's ever going to mention that at the Oval Office or on a diplomatic mission to the Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, just talking about the the texture and the rawness? Do you think the Robin Williams episode was like one of the bigger tipping points for just the show's notoriety? Oh, it absolutely was, and I'm I and I mean that um, you know well before he passed away. It was it was episode sixty seven. It might be I'm, if if I have that wrong, it's in the sixties. And although we had, had some larger names on the show prior to that, Zach Galifianakis being one that I can think of, uh, uh, David Cross, Jim Gaffigan. Those are all predominantly close friends of Mark's, you know, people that he'd known for a long time and asked them to, you know, come on the show and have a conversation with him and, and have a conversation with him as a friend, not as a kind of biographical sketch. Um, you know, these were just still kind of very loose conversations with other comedians about mostly comedy and so when robin williams agreed to do the show i think out of after the recommendation of uh a comedian named bob pitta um who is also up in the san francisco area with robin um robin knew mark he you know knew him and liked him as a comic and so i you know think he thought yeah, this is this would be a good thing and um and for whatever reason, I think the main reason being that it was just Mark and Robin alone in a room, it just became this very unusual conversation for Robin Williams in public, like as a public presentation of who he is. I really don't think you can point to any place in media, uh, maybe one or two print pieces, where he was as grounded and down to earth and stripped of his comedic persona as he was in that interview. And so the name alone brought some people on, on board that might not have already been listening to the show. They said, Oh, Robin Williams, you know, one of the big comedy stars in the world. Let me listen to this. And then the content I think changed people's perception of what an interview could be or an, an interview on in podcasts. And uh, we definitely saw a big change from that moment on. So uh, it absolutely was a huge, huge, huge moment for us. Probably like one of the two early inflection points for the show. Well, was the, was the other one Todd Glass? No, the other would be Louis, the, the two-part episode yeah. with Louis C.K. that Mark did, um, which was also just around, uh, it was a little after a year of doing the show, maybe 13 months into doing it. Um, 
And because Mark had been having friends of his from, you know, many, many years of doing comedy on the show, it was a pretty glaring omission that Louie was not on the show at that point. And Mark had talked on some of those earlier episodes about trying to contact Louie to do the show and not getting a callback or not getting an email returned. So it became a little bit of like a running narrative within the first year of the show. Um, so that when they finally did the interview and the kind of baggage that had accumulated between the two of them that had somewhat fractured their friendship um, was kind of laid out for everybody to hear. Uh, in addition to it being like a fantastic interview with Louis. You know, they've never heard people talk to each other like that and about their friendship. And, you know, it, sound, it seemed like something almost we weren't supposed to hear, but we were hearing it. And I agree with that, obviously. I think that's all true. And it's why they, the episode has gotten the attention that it's gotten. But I think if you strip that away, there aren't many or any other interviews with Louis C.K. that are as interesting and as thorough about his career arc and his career trajectory i think mark was just at an advantage in doing that interview because he he knew the guy since he was a, a young kid basically but there was some like tension as well right because he yeah it, it was it was a it was a friendship that had gone through its ups and downs you know and uh and they had not really worked it out uh before having that conversation on the microphones so uh they did it there and and everyone got to hear it yeah that's great and you're the, you were the first one to hear it yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, I I kind of knew uh, before I even heard it, just from talking to Mark after he did the interview, that it was going to be something special. Um, and I don't mean special in the sense that like, oh, look at what we scored. We scored an interview with Louis C.K. and he cried while he's talking about his children. Like, I thought it was just, this is going to be something special because I bet a lot of people are having problems like this with friends of theirs. And this is just really extraordinary that you two guys are able to sit down and, and talk the way you were able to talk, have it be a compelling conversation, but also, you know, somewhat reaffirming to people that like, yeah, you can, you know, mend fences and uh, being good friends with people just requires some effort. Yeah, that's actually like more profound than you would think you'd get from a podcast called WTF. You know, cause yeah. it's co comedy, people are typically funny and radio, you come from radio, you're in Air America and there people have bits. And I used to work at this DC improv, uh, comedy venue in Washington, DC. And we used to do AM radio and FM radio runs in the morning at like 5 AM for every comic that was in town, you know, and, and this, the show you guys have created is the opposite. You know, there's no one is up there like telling their bits trying to promote their comedy show it's almost the opposite it's it's non-promotional yeah i think that that started out um by the show having zero agenda when we when when we created it um and mark you know likes to say that those first hundred episodes were really like him talking to famous people trying to have them help him out with his problems and uh, you know that's not entirely untrue. And the, the, the effect of that, I think, was to kind of quickly establish the show and episodes like the one with Robin and the one with uh, Louis and one with Ben Stiller and 
one with Judd Apatow. You know, those are all people who did the show who got what it was. They were not doing it because they had a movie to sell. They were doing it because they had heard it or heard about it, you know, or had it recommended to them as a great place for a good conversation. You know, kind of the way that people used to go on, you know, Dick Cavett's show, you know, you, you, you know, or, or, or Tom Snyder. You know, they were not necessarily selling, um, you know, an upcoming movie. They were just public figures who had stuff to say. And I think uh, because of that, we've maintained that through the 600 plus episodes we've done where, you know, we won't do promotional interviews for, for the full episode. You know, Mark, Mark will uh, graciously uh, have his friends over sometimes and, and do 10 minutes at the beginning of an episode to, you know, uh, help somebody out if they've got a book out or a, a, a movie out or, or something like that. And, you know, his feeling about that is kind of like a, a um, you know, everybody can help everybody out situation. It's not that, it, you know, we, we go requesting, you know, promotional stuff. It's that people were gracious enough to appear on our show, which helped raise our tied quite a bit um so of course we're gonna you know pay the favor back yeah it's like there's an unwritten law of just helping other people and you can lift them up they lift you up and i feel like podcasting in general is so collaborative i I was i was gonna say i think that in when we started out the early days of doing the show which were also kind of the early days of other shows developing um everyone kind of did and followed that mentality you know, people were very quick to appear on each other's shows. Um, and, and it's not like they're not now, by the way. I'm not trying to say no one will appear on, on other podcasters' shows. I think it's just that there's, there's no need to because there's an actual demand for it amongst people that are not in the podcasting community. Uh, but it definitely helped to, in you know, the first two years we were doing this, 2009, 2010, um, to have a podcasting community that helped promote each other, helped uh, draw attention to different areas of uh, comedy podcasting in particular. Um, you know, it, it was, it was, it felt like a real um, kind of ecosystem that was growing and developing and blooming right kind of before our eyes. Are you talking about like Nerdist, like going? Sure. Oh yeah. Nerdist and uh, Adam Carolla, Doug Benson, Jimmy Pardo. Um, and, and, and shows that would crop up while we were in the midst of doing our show. Uh, you know, I could think of like Jackie Cation's show and, um, uh, you know, I'm forgetting dozens of them right now. They, they, there were plenty of, um, shows in which the hosts would appear on each other's show and entire groups of hosts would appear on panels together on either other people's panel shows or on, you know, public events where they were hosting podcasters. Uh, and I definitely think all that helped. It helped to present a kind of uh, unified front of, of creative people who were uh, excited about a, a, a medium in which they were working. You know, these, it was clear that these weren't just comedians who needed to sell comedy albums or sell tickets to their venues. These were people who were trying to make this thing work. And there's a byproduct of tel- selling tickets or promoting TV shows. That naturally will happen if you do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You, you know, you. Uh, Mark's definitely seen it. He's definitely seen it in his touring. You know, he's he was just able to come off a uh, you know multi city tour across the country where you know he was selling out theaters and 
um, you know, that had never happened for him before. And it is now. And of course, there's lots of things. That's a confluence of many, many different uh, events for him. Uh, but he would be the first to tell you that the, the podcast is the center of that. I talk to a lot of YouTube creators and uh, they do a lot of collaborations. And it really, like a smaller YouTuber will go on a bigger YouTuber show. Like Hannah Hart will, or this guy Flula, who's this German comedian DJ. He collaborates all the time, and you can really increase subscribers and increase people's presence. Just it's almost like if you don't collaborate, you you are in this vacuum. Yeah, well, I, that's definitely our motivation. Uh, you know, we just it was just announced today that we're partnered with um, with Midroll Media, who, who 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 runs Earwolf and Wolf Pop, and they they now have this premium subscription service called Howl, and uh, and we've we've decided to partner with them and offer the WTF archives through Howl and also um, create some original content that they'll offer through that subscription service. And the, the biggest motivating factor of that was kind of what you're saying that we thought, you know, it's been, it's been the best possible thing for us to be independent content creators. We answer only to ourselves and our audience. That's absolutely, you know, been a key to, to keeping this going as long as we have. And with, you know, consistency that we have decided to, to put into the project. But the one big drawback is that we are kind of out there on an Island. And, um, you know, aside from the goodwill that exists among podcasters and people who are also comedians and friends of Mark who, you know, like I said, everyone's kind of more than happy to help each other. Um, in the discovery phase for consumers, there's less, entry points to our show because we're not really part of this collaborative community in the way that like shows that are on the Earwolf network are all connected through Earwolf. So, you know, we're excited for the first, this is like the first time that we've been able to really be a part of a, of a network of shows. And even though we're still being produced independently and we're not, you know, the property of a network, uh, it feels like it's the best of both worlds. It feels like we're 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 kind of finally going to be able to um, get the benefits of being involved with the network, and uh, you know, and still kind of pave our own way. Yeah, actually, I had uh, Jeff Ulrich, who was you know the founder of Earwolf and mm -hmm. chairman now. I talked to him when he was still CEO. He's one of my very first guests. I literally had three episodes up, and we talked, and he was awesome. Yeah, yeah, Jeff's the entire reason that we did this. Yeah, like the the uh, um, you know we've been we've been hesitant for a long time, basically since you know the the, the show established itself and became um, something that Mark and I could viably do as a as a career. Um, we we've been hesitant to to turn the reins of any sector of our business over to anyone else, and um, the two times that we've done it now. Uh, you know, in going into like a full exclusive partnership with someone, uh, it's been with Jeff and it's because I think he knows where he knows what we value most of all, which is the fact that this is a kind of free and developing medium for people who create things. And the, the worst thing that you can do is just start to create old structures over this new thing. And, um, and and make the this kind of nicely evolving, very multifaceted organism 
contour to some prescribed notion of what a media outlet is. Uh, and Jeff, Jeff, Jeff gets that, and he was always an advocate of of developing things in a in a very uh, creator friendly manner. So, you know, both times which he's laid a pitch on us, we've been skeptical of of the type of pitch that he was coming at us with in the first place. The first time being uh, to to sell our ads exclusively through Midroll, and the second time being with Howell. And both times it just wound up making. Hundred percent sense, and that's actually had a listener question was about the future of the the medium of podcasting, and uh, without getting too philosophical, it sounded like very heavy. But uh, like it's, it sounds like Howl is something that you're you guys are obviously behind and passionate about. Do you think like the collaboration of you know podcasters more or less teaming up in bigger networks with subscription models and archives of content? charging people that have been loyal fans, you know, consuming free content. Is that something that you're seeing you think is a trend or what do you, well, I, I think that, I think that it's really just where whatever the proliferation of any, uh, media outlet, uh, to, to the point where it's had like full saturation just comes with access. So, okay. How do you access it? Now podcasts are pretty easy to access. Like they're generally free and they're generally available on, you know, um, any kind of broadcast, any kind of uh, uh, smartphone platform that you have, or uh, um, you know, your desktop is you know an easy way to get podcasts. Still, there's just still you know bring it right up on iTunes. It's it's not a hard thing to get. What I find is a roadblock for a lot of people is the sense that it doesn't contour to their routines yet. You know, they don't necessarily have um, you know a a a place in their house, for instance, that they listen to podcasts, you know, or a, a way to get it in the car that doesn't require like syncing several times to a Bluetooth, you know, uh, 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 connection on your smartphone. So I, I think, you know, the, the changes that are happening technologically are the more important things than where is everybody clustered? Where, what do people, um, you know, use to listen to their podcasts. Uh, it's it's less about the the how and more about the why. Like, why are you getting podcasts? Oh, I'm getting it because I can easily get them in my car. Like, that's where I think the future of it lies. The future of it lies in you know it becoming more second nature than it is now. So, Bluetooth connected devices. You're getting uh, like internet connected cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like the 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 moment that I can you know, push a button in my car the way I can right now to get the serious radio. Uh, and, and it becomes the same way that I get a podcast is, you know, that's, that's the, that's kind of the promised land for us right now. Um, you know, and that's in terms of what people wind up doing in terms of consuming them for, you know, whether it's uh, a service that they're paying for or a way they're getting it for free. Like I, I still, I, I take the approach that I do with like television with that. If you don't want to pay for any television other than what's on, uh, you know, over the air antennas or, you know, however that is distributed now since it's all digital. Uh, but you know, that's, that's your choice and you can do that and you can bundle together a bunch of streaming services like Hulu and Netflix. And you know, you'll have the viewing experience you want to have. If you want to pay for the bundle of, you know, cable channels and, that, that are offered through 
Time Warner or Comcast, that's your choice as well. And I think the same thing will happen with something like podcasting the same way that it's happened with radio. You know, some people are fine with turning on the AM or FM in their car, listening to commercials. And, uh, you know, that's their way of experiencing the content. Uh, some people have paid for the service that eliminates all the commercials. And, you know, so we're, we're taking that same approach. You know, we still, the, the podcast is always going to be free. It's always going to be available to people. Um, it has ads in it. So that's how we can keep doing it. Um, if people would like to pay a subscription price for it so that it has no ads and they can hear them whenever they want, they can hear the archives whenever they want, then that's great. So do you keep some, because most of the content's evergreen. Yeah. Uh, do you keep content sometimes in reserve where you're like, oh, this is something we can play when we don't have enough episodes banked? Yeah, we, the, the, uh, one of our secrets is that we bank a lot. We have usually have about a two month on average backlog. Sometimes if Mark is like shooting his television show, uh, we'll bank like four months worth of episodes because he's not able to really record any interviews while he's, uh, while he's shooting his show. That's probably a big contributor to the decision to make these things evergreen. Aside from the fact that it really helps the 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 archives seem fresh and and relevant, um, the you know the the uh, decision to have the interviews be somewhat timeless is out of necessity of knowing we might not be putting this up for several weeks and we don't want it to be dated. Uh, by the time we do, you know, we've done our, you know, the president is the best example of an interview we've done and had to put up right away. And, uh, and we've done that from time to time. And we're always, we always try to be accommodating if someone is doing the show for a, you know, around a particular event or particular, um, uh, project they've worked on or something that they're launching, you know, we might not be focusing on that as part of the interview, but we'd like to be courteous and, and allow them the, the advantages that come with the, you know, promotion of being on, on WTF, uh, you know, we try to accommodate whatever dates they, they would request. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just a balancing act that you, that I do just looking at a schedule spreadsheet and say, okay, we've got eight, 12, 16 episodes in the can, you know, here's where they go. And here's where, you know, we can plug ones in if they happen, you know, next week. Yeah. I had, a. Brian Koppelman on my podcast and I recorded it last October and he told me he just interviewed in the garage and it didn't go until like January or February. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that, 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 that's a pretty normal, um, time period, especially, yeah, last winter Mark was last fall winter. Mark was, uh, in the writer's room for his show. So that, that's a pretty standard, uh, time frame for when we have a lot of, uh, stuff going on. Well, cool. I uh, I just have a few more questions. We went a little longer, um, and I and I want to keep you from your kids that I think are in the background. Yes, you saw me get up and close the door because I knew that I was going to start hearing uh, children. Okay, yeah, I'll let you go. I'll let one or two more questions. No problem. Um, I have a one and a half year old, so I get it. She's asleep right now, <laughs> luckily. Um, so yeah, I think uh, like one thing Koppelman told me is that he felt like the show you like he interviewed Mark and said, "Hey, this." You, got, you used to rail against like the gatekeepers of media, but in some ways the show has become this modern day, like you know, you said Dick Cavett, you know, or this. It's sure. like a more substantial version of uh, a late night show because you're going to get intimate 
and real answers. And I hate the word authentic, but I love the word authentic because um, sure. it's so overused. But it's it's something that's true. Like so, when someone comes on the show, like what what like what happens? Do you think that people now are just like, oh, I want to come on because I have this story to tell, or is or, I just it would seem like before you had to try to get guests, but now people I imagine are pitching you a lot. Yeah, we get a lot of pitches and we still get guests who we can't get, like people that we want on the show who who are not interested or, you know, not familiar. So th- there's there's some changes, there's some things that haven't changed at all. Uh I I would say that the the type of guest that comes on the show or the you know, the type of stories that are on the show, that's largely on us. Like that's on us to, you know, we're happy to get pitches. We so it's kind of the lifeblood of what we do is to be introduced to new and interesting people. And so, you know, if we feel that something is coming at us in the right way and that the approach seems, um, you know, that, that this person is, is willing to share something and has, uh, has a desire for an interesting conversation, then, you know, we're absolutely into it. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that there's any real difference in the way we approach it, even if the volume is greater. You know, Mark just wants to have a good conversation with somebody. So if that person seems like they can have a good conversation, he's going to go for it. Yeah. And uh, one final question. My wife did not want me to ask this, um, but the N-word was used by Obama. And Mark had said that that got a lot of media attention in some yeah. ways for the wrong reasons because people were like over central, like sensationalizing it. But then when you hear the context of it, it's not that inflammatory. What did you think about that when you heard it like in the sound room? Oh, well, when I was sitting there and I heard it, I mean, as a guy who came from a news background, I knew it was a very um, momentous sentence for the president to utter. But I like that's what kind of stuck with me was the whole sentence seemed hugely important and, and impactful. Um, the uh, And I knew it would make news and I knew that it would be something that people discussed and debated. Uh, I think you know, I agree 1 million percent with Mark that the way it was treated was, uh, it, it only served to highlight what the president was saying at another point in the interview, which is that the media echo chamber, you know, largely does a disservice to actual discussion of, of important things and, and turns it into a, either a food fight or a, you know, clickbait, uh, uh, contest. And, uh, that's definitely what happened because, you know, any any right-thinking person who listened to that uh, in context that it existed would not think that the president used the N-word, you know, that, that that the president was just saying, blithely saying that word for, for a shock purpose or, uh, you know, the way that the headlines made it look. Like, if you read certain headlines, you would have thought that he just said the word, like, as if he was calling Mark the word, you know, and... The, the reality was it was an important utterance. It was an important phrase. It was an important uh, uh, thing the president was saying overall. Uh, and I think it would you know, be very helpful for people to talk about that exact comment that he made, that exact sentence about how you know, the world has not changed just because it's not polite to use that word anymore. Um, it was, to me, it was a great thing to say. It was a great point to be made. Of the, of the many times I hear great points made on the show. 
So, uh, you know, that was that my reaction was like, yes, that's a big deal. Uh, not it's a big deal because it's salacious or scandalous. But that it's like a real meaningful, thoughtful thing to say in context. Especially for a president to say it yeah. and, and the, the nation's first black president to say it. It was, a, I thought, you know, very important thing to say. That's cool. Well, thank you for coming on. Hey, yeah. Thanks, Ryan. It was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. So glad you're here this week. I thought Brendan McDonald, the producer of WTF, was awesome. And I, the goal here is to make things that are niche and very specific as broad as possible. So hopefully you got a lot out of that one. I did. I thought it was fun and a great resource, especially for the book, because I'm in the process of writing the chapter on Mark Marin, WTF, Brendan, the podcasting industry, and where it's all going. So I think the interview itself uh, served more than more than its intended purpose of just having a great conversation because the goal of this is to have hopefully enlightening conversations that people enjoy and they're entertained and they can learn about business. So Brendan checked off all those categories, really thought it was a thoughtful conversation and look forward to hearing what you think. So feel free to leave a comment and tell me yay or nay if you like this episode. Uh, more importantly, uh, the book is coming along really, really – actually, not more importantly. Just importantly, equally as important, the book's coming along really well. Super excited. The WTF chapter has quotes from Jeff Ulrich, who we talked about in the conversation. He's the founder of Earwolf Media and Midroll Media, one of the pioneers in the podcasting industry with advertising and content. They produce a comedy, Bang Bang. They actually work with Marin on his show, Archives, as we discussed so really fired up that it's eight chapters finished right now, and I'm lucky because I've created these principles, and I didn't search for principles when I started researching the book and kicking off the podcast, but I've realized all these successful people have very specific characteristics that are universal across their success. So when you look at Nerdist or WTF for Bill Simmons or Hannah Hart, you see that there's a lot going on in their launching successful businesses and projects based on characteristics and traits that I think are learned. I think the influencer economy is a learned, adaptive guidebook that anyone and everyone who wants to create in this environment, build a platform for themselves, really can do it. And it's not just like you're born rich or you're born and you went to Harvard because your family got a connection to get you in. Or you're born in L.A. or New York and are friends with celebrities. It's really like you can build something spectacular. And I believe these principles aren't even capital driven. That they're driven based on just your general theories. So uh, with Marin, one big one that I've, uh, you know, that Brendan and I talked about is the, just the, the no agenda. And just doing something to do it. And just starting it and getting it out there. And doing two episodes a week. And the WTF chapter has... You know, collaboration is so important, and the fact that Marin got his friends to help rise to the tide of the of the ocean by bringing more attention, like Robin Williams, for example, and Louis C.K. They came on early, and then later, when the show got further and further popular in the podcast world, then Marin would have his friends come on that he could help them to promote stuff, and that's like not a big point, but it's enough to think like, okay. There's some psychology here that's in the business world that you can be successful. And 
if you just start, if you build the community, if you don't worry about monetizing, and you get after it, something like WTF can launch, and it's it's spectacular. So I want to thank Brendan coming on again. I'm also starting to share the influencer economy principles for businesses. I'm giving numerous talks in Los Angeles, like at the Apple Store, uh, in a hidden room downstairs on September 22nd. I'm also teaching the influencer economy at a uh, public library in Los Angeles, the downtown public library, at the end of uh, the month on the 23rd. And then I'm also giving lunches and talks at companies, co-working spaces, for uh, startups to, to corporations and businesses can actually work with me around it because I, I feel like this is all learned. And when I mentioned a few weeks ago that I did, uh, I was going to change the website to be more of an education resource. I, I wanted to just clarify that because someone asked me specifically, they emailed me like education, eh? And I wanted to clarify it's more of a business resource. It's more of my business resource. It's going to be my home page for my business. And whether that's coaching executives training entrepreneurs, startup founders, or online classes. And so the education part is more a business element. And so I want to clarify that because I'm so excited to launch the business part of this into the bigger stratosphere. So if you want to work with me, hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. And if you are on iTunes, please leave a review. would love to hear from you. And the comments mean the world. So without further ado, I'm heading over to Duke Zebert's. Uh, Julia is almost 23 months. About to be the big two. And uh, she's really coming into her own, running around. No means yes, yes means no. I think it's opposites now that she's getting at the age of two where you tell her not to do something and she'll do it. And you ask her to do something and she won't do it. Uh, so I guess it's welcome to the rest of my life. But anyway, heading over to Duke Zebers for some chicken in the pot. 